This is Amplify, a podcast for people that want to crush life by learning from the minds of high performers. So take a deep breath in and get ready to become more, live more, and give more. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Amplify podcast. I'm your host, John Templeton, and joining me today is Dr. John D. Martini. Now, Dr. John D. Martini is a world-renowned specialist in human behavior, a researcher, author, and a global educator. He has developed a series of solutions applicable across all markets, sectors, and age groups. His education curriculum ranges from corporate empowerment programs, financial empowerment strategies, self-development programs, relationship solutions, and social transformation programs. His teachings start at the core of the issue, addressing the human factor, and range out to a multitude of powerful tools that have proven the test of time. He has studied over 30,000 books across all the defined academic disciplines and has synthesized the wisdom of the ages, which he shares on stages in over 100 countries. And personally, I've read a number of um, Dr. John D. Martini's books. I've done his online programs and I've watched probably every YouTube video there is out there. And so if you get the opportunity, please do it. And Dr. John D. Martini is well known for work around values. And if you go to his website, there's actually a free values determination process. And I recommend you do it. And that's where I want to start today's conversation. Can you just let everybody know a little bit about values and why you put such a high priority on people understanding their values. Okay, great. Thank you. Well, regardless of gender, age, or culture, each individual perceives, decides, and acts according to a set of values, a set of priorities, things that are most important to least important in their life. And because it controls our sensory perceptions, our interneuron, you know, decisions and our actions, it affects our behavior. In fact, the hierarchy of our values dictates our destiny, where we're headed, our destination, you might say. So identifying what is highest on your list of values, what is truly most priority, most important, most meaningful, most inspiring to you, and setting sail as captain of your ship in the direction of that and filling your day with high priority actions that inspire you. If you do, your day doesn't fill up with low priority distractions that devalue you and distract you. And you end up with higher performance and higher expansion of awareness and potential. So values are critical. And I, I pretty well start most of the programs that I do with a basic foundation of that because that's really the foundation of human behavior. So that's the reason why I put so much emphasis on that. I've been presenting around that. I've been teaching for 48 years and presenting on that topic for about 43. Yeah, incredible. And um, I do have a question with these values because I've been through your, your the, the, the um, values determination process on your website and your teaching is that your voids create your values. Is that true? And can you explain a little bit about how that happens as well? Okay. This will take a little bit of a, an abstraction. Let's say you meet somebody that you perceive supports your image uh, of what you want in life as far as a mate, a search image. 
And because they're supporting, you become conscious with a subjective bias, you become conscious of the upsides and unconscious of the downsides. And when you meet them, you're a little intimidated, a little infatuated with them and a little frightened of losing them. And you're enamored with them. And you tend to minimize yourself and exaggerate them. And you're too humble to admit what you see in them is inside you. And that's a disowned part of yourself. Mm-hmm. So you're actually playing small compared to them. And that's why you fear your loss of them. If you resent somebody and they become an anti-search image, a challenge to you, um, you do the opposite. You tend to exaggerate yourself to them, minimize them, and are too proud to admit what you see in them is inside you. And that's a disowned part. And each disowned part is a void, something that you're, you might say is missing from your awareness of yourself. Is this what what Jung would call the shadow? Well, it depends on your perception of what you're seeking. If, if you're labeling something good, the shadow becomes the opposite. Okay. If you're labeling something bad, the shadow becomes its opposite. So it doesn't necessarily mean a, a positive or negative. It's just whatever's disowned. Mm-hmm. And it's what you're unconscious of in yourself. So the truth about you is you have both sides. You have what you admire in others because that the reason why you admire it is because they're reminding you of something you have inside that are too humble to admit. And you also... And when you despise somebody, it's, it's because you're too proud to admit it, but you have it inside you. So when you finally realize that reflectively that everything around you is a reflection of you and it's a projection of you, you dissolve the void and fulfill the value. Mm-hmm. So what happens is we accumulate in our subconscious mind a storage of all of these judgment byproducts, which are too proud or too humble to admit what we see in things around us within ourselves. And those voids yearn to be owned because that way we have reflective awareness, which is the highest level awareness. There's an old philosophical and theological principle that at the level of the essence of our soul, the state of unconditional love, where we love and have equanimity and reflection, nothing's missing in us. But the level of the existence of our senses, where we judge in the terrestrial world, the world of trial and judgment and perception, where we are too proud or too humble to admit what we see in others inside us. We're we're putting people in pedestals or pits and living in their shadows or overruling them. The moment we exaggerate or minimize ourselves and become inauthentic, we create these voids inside our life that want to be brought back into equanimity and equity and brought back to love and appreciation. So these voids determine our values and the hierarchy of our values dictates our destiny because our pathway of our life is to maximize the fulfillment of those voids. Mm -hmm. So all of our accumulated subconsciously stored impulses and instincts that are our judgments of the previous experiences are impacting our pathway. And our pathway is most efficient when it actually fulfills those voids. Mm -hmm. That's what we're attempting to do. We're helping to learn that all of those judgments are delusions and incomplete awarenesses of ourselves that are unconscious and we're here to be fully conscious because when we're infatuated with somebody, and we're unconscious of the downside or resentful to somebody and unconscious of the upside. When we finally love somebody, we become conscious of both sides. And so we're constantly in pursuit, in a sense, unconsciously, intuitively to try to love, try to appreciate and love the parts of us we haven't loved and the parts of others that we're too proud or too humble to admit we have. Yes, that makes sense. And so... This kind of leads to my, another question, which is if you were to um, neutralize everything, so you were in that state of unconditional love, what would happen to your values? Because 
if they dictate your destiny and your values are now you don't have any void so to speak what happens to your destiny well the way the magnificence is whatever you know there's always an unknown outside you you know this has been shown and described from ancient greek times and beyond and so there's always an infinite potentiality beyond what we finitely know and every time we go into and beyond the known and we go into the unknown we birth a new judgment Mm-hmm. And we then are in a journey of evolving our voids and values as we go through life. When we're a child between zero and 10, we may want to play. 10 to 20, we may want to socialize. 20 and 30, we may find a relationship and a career path. 30 to 40, we may want to have a family and our own business. Every decade, it's evolving. So in a moment of grace, a moment of unconditional love, we transcend those judgments and voids, but we birth new ones. We go on to the next mystery. Mm-hmm. We transform our histories into the next mystery and then make a history out of that. And so there's no end to the dissolving and the recreation of new voids and values. It's an, uh, life's a journey, not this destination. It's done. And I can't remember the saying, but it's, it's with every, like with every level, there's a new kind of set of problems. Is that the same yes. thing you're saying? The same as reaching the Peter principle of incompetency. Because whenever you infatuate or resent somebody, they occupy space and time in your mind and run you. Mm-hmm. And you reach a, a level where things extrinsically run you and you're now run by the world around you instead of governed within. And mm-hmm. when you do, you reach the Peter principle in a sense of incompetency because you're not, you're, you're distorting your reality with these subjective hallucinative biases instead of actually being present and reflective and realizing the order that's there. But the second you bring it to an unconditional love state or a state of grace or a state of equanimity or a state of a true objectivity, which the executive part of our brain is striving for at all times, we transcend that judgment, integrate ourselves, feel fulfilled for a moment until we go on to the next illusion. Hmm. Life is moving from one illusion to the next. <laughs> and is, is that enlightenment? Would that, that moment of bliss, is that enlightenment or is enlightenment a bit more sustained? A moment. A moment. So it's no, not a moment. It's not moment. sustainable. It's not sustainable. Don't don't. If you see somebody that thinks they're enlightened, um, they're not. They have a moment of relative degrees of enlightenment along there momentarily. Richard M. Book wrote a book in 1901 in London, Ontario, called Cosmic Consciousness. This cosmic conscious book took 43 of the most illuminated people in history. Uh, the most enlightened people that are classic individuals that we've thought of enlightened and found only moments of relative enlightenment, never sustainable enlightenment. So when a guru comes along and says they're all enlightened, walk away because there's no, when you stop and think about what we know on this little speck of an earth, this infinitesimal relative to 93 million miles, if you're on the sun looking at the earth, you can hardly see it. And it's spinning around at a thousand miles an hour and whatever you think is enlightenment is a very finite awareness. And then from the sun, it's 26 to 6, 27,000 light years away at the speed of light, 20,000 years of light travel to get to the Milky Way Center. And from the Milky Way Center, our sun is not even discernible. It's, it's covered in, in gas and dust and hydrogen and helium, and we can't see the thing. In the process of doing it, whatever we've saw on this planet going around the sun, it's insignificant. And that's just the Milky Way. And the Milky Way is part of a Virgo cluster and part of a local cluster and a Virgo cluster and a super Launia, Launia Kea super cluster. And that's part of a big 
you know, plasma stream and part of a bag, big void surrounding it and part of a cosmic web and part of an, a massive observable universe. And we don't even know if there's a boundary on that. Supposedly to some cosmologists like Brian Greene, it's, it's a flat universe that's potentially infinite unbounded. So anything that we know here on this planet is so insignificant. I think we need to be living, as Einstein said, with holy curiosity, not with the idea of pride and thinking, you know, dogmatically that we have, we have to answer. We, we have to continue to grow and, and go to the next mystery. So that's why we keep having the transformation of our voids and values and evolve as we go. And if, if there are beings on earth that are playing in that enlightened space more often, let's say, coming in and out of that feeling and that they do have a high level of consciousness, could you just get, because I'm, I'm potentially not there, right? So it's like, what kind of problems would they be facing? I would assume that you've got a very high level of consciousness. So what are your, what are your problems? What are your values? Well, beware of assuming somebody is more or less. That's part of the illusion. They have their own sets of crazies. You know, yep. I'm no more enlightened. I'll, I, in fact, if you were to take uh, me and saw me in a tech conference or something, you would think, <laughs> idiot. You know, I don't, uh, I don't even use a high, I, I'm not much tech. I have, I learned a long time ago, do what your core competency and what you love doing, what's highest on your value and fill your day with that. And mine is researching and teaching. And that's it. So I delegate everything but research, write and teach. I haven't driven in over 30 years. I haven't cooked since I was 24. I've delegated everything. I don't do administrator, I don't do management. I don't do anything except research and teach. And I've done five programs today and I got two more tonight. So I'm constantly teaching and constantly researching. And in that area, in my little specialty, which is insignificant and in, 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 in infinitesimal, I'm relatively aware. But outside that, I'm an idiot. I Imagine how much I don't know about your life. And that's a whole life. And now put, you know, billions, 8 billion people in plants that I don't know anything about their lives. So it's, it's, it's a contextual construct of enlightenment. And I don't like to label myself as any more enlightened than you because you have experiences that I don't have and I'm completely ignorant of it. Yep. That makes sense. And thank you for that. Um, because not many, I think a lot of coaches probably play the, play the game of pretending they know all the answers but that's going to kick them in the ass pretty soon when things start to fall apart around them. Well, whenever you um, get addicted to pride, you attract humbling circumstances to, to get you back in authenticity. Whenever you're proud, you exaggerate yourself. Whenever you're minimized, you know, when you're shamed, you minimize yourself. But really, all of our physiology, psychology, sociology, and even our theological constructs have been birthed through the ages from pre-anthropomorphic all the way to cosmological mathematical states. We are constantly striving for authenticity. We want to be loved for who we are, but how are we going to be loved for who we are if we're not even being who we are? Mm -hmm. So being, having the courage, walking on coals and jumping bungee jumps are insignificant nothings compared to the courage of being yourself mm -hmm. in a world that's trying to get you to be something traditional or conventional. You have to be willing to be an unborrowed visionary in order to be authentic. And that's a, that's a journey, not some done. There's no yeah. destination. And, 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 and you would say that that is by living by your highest values. That That's the name of the game at, at, well, we call at the that base congruency. level. We call that congruency. We call that integrity. We call that knowing. Our highest value was called the telos by Aristotle. And teleology was the study of meaning and purpose. So our most meaningful, most purposeful, most inspiring state is living by what's most important to us. That's also our ontological state of being. When we, 
if you look carefully, you tell me what your highest value is, I'll tell you what you spontaneously do without having to be reminded or disciplined or extrinsically motivated. That's the most authentic you. And epistemologically, you learn the most in that area. You know, my highest value is the study of human behavior, maximizing human awareness potential and involvement of consciousness. So in the process of doing it, that's the area I'm most knowledgeable about and want to learn about. So epistemologically, I'm constantly learning, learning in that area. So epistemologically, ontologically, teleologically, categorically, our highest value is the foundation of where we're going. And that's the where we're most objective and most transcendent, self-actualized. So that's just a, a pathway, but it's evolving as it goes. I remember in the values factor, one of your books, you said there are three things. It's, it's, it's along the lines of you remember more, you, can you remember what they are? Like, like you never run out of energy, you remember more, and there's one more thing, and they all sound oh, really there's, there's There's many. You went, went, your brain is set up with a pulmonary nuclei in the subcortical area of the thalamus that is a gatekeeper and filter of sensory perceptions. And it filters out of reality, which is a finite reality compared to what's actually there. Well, only what you're perceiving through contrast and judgment, it's filtering it out. And you have a tension surplus order in the area of what's highest in your value. Whatever's low in your value, you have a tension deficit disorder. So you, re you absorb information, you retain that information, you imagine what you can do with that information, and you apply that information when you're congruent with your highest value. But in lower values, those go down, which is why you procrastinate, hesitate, and frustrate and play a smaller game. Mm -hmm. There's nothing more significant than filling your day with the highest priority actions that inspire you, that are deeply meaningful, that you can't wait to get up and do, that serves the greatest number of highest values of others. That's the most powerful thing of actualized life we can make. Yeah. And for anybody watching or listening, I think you reminded me during that. I think you say in the values factor, it's where you pay most attention. You have the most retention and maybe it's intention. I don't know if intention. that, yeah. Attention, retention, intention. That's the three. Cool. And so, I mean, would you say a value just as definition wise, a value is something because some people I've done so many trainings with so many coaches and everyone's got a slightly different idea. Is it a feeling or is it a, a, a process What's the definition of a value? A value is something that you value, that you project a value onto, and that in, if it depends on what that value is, is something important in your life. Okay, important so, means something you want to import into your sphere of awareness or influence. Okay, something so, you want to import into your sphere of awareness and influence. That's called important. And that's what you value. And the greater the value. Values gave rise to economics, the study of values, axiology, and also theology, and also the, the, the products and goods in the economic world. So it, tell me what you value, and I'll tell you what you'll seek. That's by the bottom line. Yeah. And, and yeah. whatever. So I value knowledge, okay? That's, that's been my, and my void. I was learned disabled as a child, so that was my starting point. So that became my void, and that became my value. So whatever I value... I spontaneously am inspired to fulfill. So finding out what that is, that's why on my website, drdmartini.com, the value determination, I believe every human being could benefit from doing it because it, it makes you stop and look at what your life demonstrates is valuable. Not mm -hmm. what you fantasize, not what you think it should be, but what your life actually demonstrates, how you fill your space, what you spend your time on, what really energizes you and brings vitality to you. What is it you spend your money on? What is it you bring order to? Where are you most disciplined? 
What do you think about, visualize and internally dialogue with yourself about how you want your life that's actually showing evidence and momentum building? What do you converse and talk to other people about most frequently? What is it that inspires you with tears in your eyes? What is it that you have as goals that are actually committed and achieved? And what is it you can't wait to learn? Finding out what your life demonstrates in that and finding out the answers, if honest, will reiterate and will point you very obviously in a direction. Mm -hmm. And that's the area where you're going to excel the most. And that is evolving. So you keep current. I tell people, do it every quarter and look and see how it's evolving because it's evolving. Yeah. And and I want to reiterate that as well. I'm on top of my values constantly and they are growing as I grow. And for anybody that's watching or listening, either live or the recorded, please go to Dr. John Demartini's website. Is it drdemartini.com? Yes. Yes. And I can put the link below this video for the recording and do the values process because I can't stress how important it is. Um, if anybody follows me, watches on social media, they know that I, I do my best to live by my values. My question comes with this is a bit of a personal question is, is, is Maslow's hierarchy of needs and values. Do needs overtake someone's actual set of values? As in, if somebody is that they really important to them could be, um, you know, family, but there's no money. So instead of being with their family, which is really important to them, they have to go to work and spend time at work, which is more of a, a need of survival. When you look at Maslow's hierarchy. Well, there is, uh, Derek Denton wrote The Dawn of Civilization and talked about uh, the basic needs. You have obviously oxygen and air. Then you got water. Mm -hmm. Oxygen is more valuable than water because you can go only just so many minutes without that. Then water comes next. Then comes food, unless you're Winhoff or whatever. You can go a little bit longer with without water, water or whatever. Then, um, then you have, in a sense procreation and security of a, a space, something that goes, this is shelter, we could call it shelter, right? And procreation, and it moves up the need levels, right? Now, if you're in survival, you're not thinking self-actualization. You're not thinking, I need to go and make a difference in the world. You're thinking of whatever's next in the hierarchy. So if you don't have money and you don't have food and everything else, even though you have a family, you're gonna go out and work and try to get the food for the family. If somebody's about to take care of and, and, and kill your family or whatever, you'll stop that because that'll be more important than, than probably just getting food, surviving as a, as a human being. So suicide, then survival, then securitization, then socialization. There's, there's needs that go up the level. Maslow puts some of them in order. I don't necessarily use exactly Maslow's ideas, but I, I think there's some, the basic theme is there. But each individual, depending on where they are at any one moment, their needs are going to be based on where they are in that hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And if they have already passed through security and they're past socialization, they're past self-esteem, and they're on to, you know, what is it I can contribute to the world because I have the ability to make a difference in the world, they're farther up and their need levels there is higher. So what now they need is how do I reach billion people? Mm -hmm. Where before is how do I get food? So the needs are evolving constantly. And the expression of that hierarchy of values is, is if you feel that you're filling your highest values, you're going to go towards self-actualization. If you feel you haven't even fulfilled your highest values, you're going to go towards security and, and suicidal states. Okay. Survival. And there's a question, which is, you know, when you're um, eliciting someone's values is what's, what's important to you. 
in, in, in the context of your life, what's important to you? And I've tried that question and I've tried the question, um, what do you love? And I get two different answers. What would you say about finding someone's values? One. I wouldn't be the one. They're not objective. They're going to tell you people. If I ask somebody right now, if I asked you or anybody, I've, I've done this in front of thousands of people and in conferences. How many of you want to be financially independent? Everybody puts their hand up. They all want to be financially independent. I would like to have enough money where I don't have to worry about it. Right. But then reality is how many of you are unless some 1% put their hand up. So what people tell you, it means nothing. It's what their life demonstrates. That's why my value determination process, I want people to do it because it will be a discernment between what they fantasize about and what they actually live and what you live, your actions speak louder than those words. So if you ask people what you love, they're going to say what's pleasure because they're going to associate love and pleasure. Mm -hmm. And that's not what this is about. And if you say, well, what do I need or what's important to me? They're going to give you a rational thing about what people think it should be. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be inundated by the injected values of authorities, you know, conventions, traditions, whoever their authorities are, mother, father, preachers, teachers, or conventions, traditions, and religions, and things like that. Or they're going to give it what they think you want to hear or the, what they fantasize about. All of signs of not congruent behavior and understanding. But if you go and look and answer these questions, and I've tried to discern them as best I can objectively. If you answer those objectively, you might have your mind blown. You may find out what your life is demonstrating isn't what you think. Because 99% of the people that say they want to be financially independent, the moment they get money, they buy consumables that depreciate in value and they can't seem to get ahead and they don't have any committed savings and investment strategies. They're not on their way to financial independence. So they have a fantasy. The same thing. I hear people weekly say, oh, I want to find my soulmate. I want to find my mate. I want to have a family and everything. And yet they've gone two to five years without a relationship because they've got wounds of the past. They're making sure that unconsciously they're avoiding those situations. So I don't go by what people say. I go by what they live. Mm -hmm. Their life speaks louder than their words. And that makes complete sense. My question is if someone's, if someone's living in the needs area, not the, not the sort of the values area, are they going to go through those questions and it's going to be answered based on survival as opposed to answer show up in their actions. If, if they're living in lower values, it's going to reveal that. Okay. That it's going to show the incongruency. Yes. Because, because right. when you go through the questions, if the answers aren't repeatedly and reiterated through the process, there's a lie. <laughs> yeah. You're lying to yourself. And so what you're doing is, and, and what's got to realize that people make decisions based on what they believe will give them the greatest advantage or disadvantage to whatever they value most. Mm -hmm. So whether they tell you, I have people say, well, what's important to me is family, but they're working eight to 10 to 15 hours a day. And they'll say, well, what's important to me is, is getting, you know, getting financially ahead, but they don't have any savings. Or they say, I just want to have a marriage and want to have a family someday, but they're not dating. And they're basically frightened of it being close to somebody. So I don't go by what they say. I go by what they live. And if they're not, if they are upset and they're thinking, well, my life is a strategy, is, is unfulfilled, it's because they've injected the values of others and they're trying to live in other people's values. The most common thing that brings people self-depreciation is the comparing their life to other people that they've got on pedestals and then envying them and trying to imitate them and then wondering why they're not living up to it. And it's like a cat trying to swim like a fish and beating itself up. And mm -hmm. then feeling in Maslow's needs down 
because they're attempting to live outside their own values and their life keeps pushing them back onto their own values, but they're not honoring it because they keep envying somebody else and trying to be somebody they're not, which mm -hmm. is self-depreciating. Mm -hmm. And that's where most people are stuck. Okay. And I'll, I'll kick myself if I don't ask this, but is there any potential that people truly do value family first but it's not showing up because they're in a stress response to put food on the table so they are at work all day in 43 years if they really had family on their value they will marry somebody or organize a business where they can delegate to be with that family okay that's so i've been doing this 43 <laughs> years i don't go by what people say now, I have every week, and when I teach the Breakthrough Experience, I've done 1,117 times. I've had people say, well, my most important value is my family. And we go and look and do the values. It's not on there. It's their fantasy and delusion about what they think that they want it to be instead of what their life demonstrates. And then they wonder why they are lying to themselves about what's really important. I go by what those criteria, those criteria are more powerful than people think. Because what your life demonstrates is what decisions you made to give you that reality. So if you're sitting there and you're going, well, I have to work, I have to work, I really want to be with my kids. If you really, really, really want to be with the kids, you would find a way of hiring somebody, delegating it, extracting surplus labor value, getting my, no micromanaging on it, freeing it up so you can be with your kids. What if they didn't have the strategy to do that? Whereas if you could find, give them anything that's high in your values, you find strategy. Anytime you're living by your highest values, your blood glucose and oxygen goes into your executive center. You get automatically V5, V6 areas of the visual cortex activated. You get an inspired vision of how you can get what you want. You strategize ways of doing it. Even if you have to get mentorship and then you execute it and you have self-governance to discipline yourself. So if you're not showing that you're lying about what's important to you. That's why I want to get past what people say and get past that and find out what they do. Okay. I get, all, I, I get every week people come up and say, well, I really want to do this. I don't, I hate my job. I don't want to be at my job and I keep having to do it. No, there's something about that job, financial security that you don't perceive an alternative way of getting financial security at this point in your life. So you're using that to get what you want and you're angst about going away from that because then you don't get financial security, but you're not honoring that financial security is what you want. That's higher on your values but the value determination will pick it out. And then you'll find out what they're really doing is they're going to work to, to make sure they've got the money to pay for things they want. And it's not a limiting belief. They don't. So there's that thing that they say they want. The values determination says, well, actually this is true. Is there, could it be a limiting belief of them? Like, I don't even know if that life's possible for me. A limiting belief is nothing but an injected value from somebody you're infatuated with. That's it. So if, if someone was to depolarize, neutralize their past that was injected into them, could they then, would you see a shift in that, that thing they said they want family? Let's use that example because they've neutralized the past. They now they've been saying it to you family, 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 their hierarchy, the determination process said something different money they neutralize the past. Could you see that family actually truly does come in? If, if, if you have, look, every decision you make is based on what you believe will give you the greatest advantage or disadvantage at any moment. So if you don't have family and you say, I want family, I want family, I want family, but you don't have it, it's because in your mind, all the options you have more have more drawback than benefit at that moment towards getting a family compared to what you perceive you're doing. 
-hmm. but you have a fantasy because you've injected the values of some of you things got the family, the fantasy you want, and you're now beating yourself up instead of honoring your values, you're comparing what you're actually going towards with a fantasy and then self-depreciating. Mm -hmm. It's a very common thing. That's why envy is ignorance and imitation is suicide. That's why trying to compare yourself to somebody else is probably the most unfulfilling thing you'll ever do in life. You're here to compare your own actions to what's truly valuable to you. And that's when you'll excel. But people really want something. They find a way. I've met people that have massive companies and have all day long with their family because they put people in place to be with their family because their family is important to them. And they wanted to make sure that they created a company that that had everybody doing everything and they were able to have time for their family. I have other people that say, well, I want my family. I, my family is everything I'm doing and they're 14 hours a day at work. And they're really delegate. They're not delegating things and freeing themselves up for the family. I go by what they, not what they say, but what they live. Mm -hmm. So really they have a higher value on being in that business. They get more fulfillment in their business than they do with their family and some more family fulfillment than being in their business. So I go by what they act, not what they fantasize. Yeah. I'm so glad we, we talked about this because for years I've always uh, wondered, I've really wondered why people say they want things and then it just doesn't demonstrate in their lives. I had a lady, I, I did a, a reality TV show at Universal Studios a number of years back, over 10 years now. And they gave me 12 people to transform their lives two hours per person for a show. Okay, just transform their life. They got two hours, John, go take care of it. I mean, it was, it was 24 hours nonstop kind of thing. We filmed throughout the day. And one of the ladies came in there and she said, she says, she walks in with this box, this giant box that she carried in there with enough food to feed you for a week. More food than I eat in a week easily. And she walked in and they wanted me to transform her because she's overweight, overeating, she's binging. And she brought in enough food for everybody in there and said, I brought everybody for food in case they get hungry and then ate it all. I mean, it was like, it was unbelievable. I've never seen somebody just graze food, <laughs> freaking yeah. grazing food. And so I asked her a simple question. What's the benefit you're getting out of eating all this food? And she says, well, it's killing me. Look at me. I'm looking at me. I'm overweight. I'm thinking, I said, stop, stop the running the story, the social BS. BS. What's the benefit you're getting out of eating all the food? And she said, there is no benefit. And she started ranting again. I said, stop and answer my question. Because there's no way you would tell me and convince me that you're not getting more benefits and drawbacks out of this or you wouldn't be doing it. So answer the question, be accountable or otherwise we're not going to get a result here. Give me a result. She finally introspected, got past her facade, the social expectations and got down to real core. And she got teary eyed and she says, everybody in my family is large. If I'm not big, I feel disconnected from my family. That's the first thing she came up with. I said, good, what's the next benefit you got out of it? Now she started getting real. She says, my sister's big and she used to push me around. And I swore when I was about eight years old, I don't want to ever have her push me around. I've always made sure I'm bigger than her. Good, what's the third one? And this is the one that really bonkered her. I one time went on a really fasting weight reduction system, lost 45 pounds, started to have a tiny bit of a figure. She's a big woman, tiny bit of a figure. And a guy hit on me. And when he did on me, I thought, oh my God, I'm in love. First time she ever had an infatuation, confused it with love. And they made love. 
and she got pregnant the very first night and he was gone the ne ne very next day, never to be seen again. And then six weeks later, almost seven weeks later, she finds out she's pregnant and she's Catholic and she ends up having a, a major dilemma. Do I have an abortion? Do I not? If I have a baby with somebody I don't want, do I have a no baby? And she was caught in this. And then she ended up deciding on she's going to have an abortion. And now she's feeling guilty and shamed. And in her mind, all of that is associated with losing weight. Because she lost 45 pounds and that's what it led her to. So she unconsciously swore, I'm not doing that again. And we went down through the list of all the benefits she was getting and hiding in, on the unconscious level of what was going on there. And tears and tears and tears of layers have come out and found out that down inside what she was saying was meaningless. It was BS. I don't care what people say. It's BS. I'm interested in what their life demonstrates. And her life demonstrated that she was still getting more advantage and disadvantage in keeping weight on. Mm -hmm. When we uncovered those, and we got 75 of those, she turned to me and she says, I really don't have an intention to lose weight, do I? I said, now we've got to the truth. Now, unless we come up with viable alternative ways of getting those same benefits, excluding eating to get them, if we can come up with the same way of getting time with your family, being part of the family, not worrying about a male or whatever, by not having to eat, but alternative viable alternatives in the brain and neuroplastically modeling the brain into a new pathway, we can make it where you have an option. This was an ingenious strategy you came up with as you were developing to take care of all the pains you've had in your life and to find the pleasures in your life. And that's a strategy. And you're not wrong for it. It's not a mistake. It's not an error. It was a strategy you came up with. And you have the power to change the strategy. And that's what we started to work on. And it was amazing how when she finally realized the truth, because until you get down to the truth and make your unconscious conscious to make you fully conscious, you're going to run all kind of BS stories. You're going to blame things, external sources. You're going to come up with limited beliefs. You're going to come up with all the stuff that's in the self-help movement that's distracting to the real core, the real issue. And that's why I want to know what the real values are and what their life really demonstrates, because there is where authenticity emerges. And that's where true integrity and leadership and expanded, inspiring pathways of incremental momentum building legacies are born. That's a really, uh, that story definitely helped me understand it better. So thanks for sharing that. And I'm sure it would have helped other people as well. And when you do get down into that unconscious and make it con conscious, you, you become, you said, I think fully conscious. I know you've talked about as well, by doing, let's call it the inner work, cleaning it all up, neutralizing everything. So it's not um, an infatuation and it's not a resentment. It's, it's everything's neutralized. You say that's the, the, the state of love. Um, and it's probably got, you know, this, this where, where your soul lives and that's where inspiration comes from. What is inspiration? Cause instead of us being driven by these stories, these, these voids, we're now, we're now that that's more like motivation, pain and pleasure. We're now in a state of inspiration, which is it's very peaceful. It's the present moment. It's very loving. It's very calm. What, what, where did, where do these, where did this, where does inspiration come from? The, the, what, what drives you when you don't have pain or pleasure anymore? Ah, majority of people live in their amygdala, avoiding predators, seeking prey, avoiding pain, seeking pleasure. And they're extrinsically driven and they're looking for a pleasure on the outside, a carrot, and then some sort of punishment if they don't do it. 
religions do that. They, they tell you you're gonna have an afterlife that's bliss or you're gonna to go to eternal damnation. It's, it's the most banal, most primitive, most childish thinking process that we have. And then you go on and look at UK's got talent, America's got talent, Australia's got talent, and you watch somebody do extraordinary performance and then you wonder why you tear up. You ever seen that? I've, I was probably watching one last week and teared up. Yeah, okay. Why do you tear up? I found the common thread. Anytime an individual conquers a challenge that inspires them, it gives us permission to do and walk that path. In our highest value, we pursue challenges that inspire us. A young boy who loves video games, automatically, <clears throat> the second he conquers the video game, he wants to go to a more advanced game. Something that's more challenging. I got there, been there, done that. I want to go a challenge. So when we're living by our highest values and our path of authenticity, where we're really spontaneously inspired to act, we pursue challenges that inspire us and we want to conquer those. And we do because we come up with strategies to do it and we wake up our genius and we conquer it. But if we're doing something that's low on our values, like homework or chores, we want to procrastinate, hesitate, frustrate, dodge the pain and look for a quick escape, an outlet, candy, sweets, coffee, tea, stimulus, porn, whatever it is to outlet away from that, which is uninspiring. And most people are living in their amygdala uninspired because they're comparing their life to somebody else's values, trying to live in those values they can't and not knowing their own and pursuing what's truly meaningful because they're worried about not fitting in and they're afraid to stand out. But the second they stand out pursuing what inspires them and go and solve problems on the planet that mean something to them, deeply inspiring to them, they wake up their genius and their path of inspiration. So inspiration is where you embrace pain and pleasure in the pursuit of something deeply meaningful. And we are, we, the difference we have between the animals and human beings is any human being can go after hedonism and go after pleasure without pain. That's an animal. That's the amygdala. But the individual who's willing to go and embrace pain and pleasure, as a Stoic did, as Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus and these guys did, and pursue something that's deeply meaningful and willing to embrace pain and pleasure. In other words, you look carefully, look at the people that are making the biggest difference in the world. They're the ones that are looking for problems in the world to solve, not to avoid. Mm -hmm. Elon Musk looking for problems to solve. How do we get to Mars? Bezos is looking, how do we solve the problem of, of transactions in the world more efficiently? You know, the people that go out and do build a car that's more efficient. You know, how do we how do we solve problems that inspire us? That's the path of inspiration. Mm -hmm. And that's not avoiding pain and seeking pleasure. That's embracing pain and pleasure in the pursuit of a great cause, something meaningful. Yeah. Can I share a story, another story? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So many years ago, I had this gentleman come up to me and he said, Dr. Martin, I'd like to consult with you. I said, OK. He said, I'd like to be successful. You, you, can you help me become successful? And so I turned to him and I said, so where are you successful? See, the master realizes nothing's missing in their life. The masses are always, you know, trying to avoid pain and seek pleasure, living in a polarity. So I said, so where are you successful? And he said, well, I'm not, Dr. Martini. I want to be. And I said, great. So where are you successful? He says, Dr. Martini, you're not hearing me. I'm not. I want to be. I said, you're not hearing me. And if you want me to help you, answer my question. Where are you successful? Where are you achieving what you set out to do? And he paused for a second. He goes, okay, I have, an, I have a really great relationship with my wife. We've been together for over 10 years, almost 11 years. And yeah, the truth is we have a great relationship. I said, can you see that you set out to do that and you're achieving that? That's a fulfillment. Yes. What else? 
Well, I got a 10-year-old son and he is in baseball and I'm the coach and we are probably going to win the pennant this year. And yeah, we set out to do that. And I guess that's important. Okay. What else? Well, we all work in the family in the yard and we got this beautiful yard. We're probably going to win the yard of the, for the summer. Great. What else? Well, my mother-in-law lives with us and most people don't get along with their mother-in-laws, but she is amazing. And she's like a real mother to me. And, and we really love having her around here. And so, yeah, that's a success. We had a goal to have family like that together. Great. What else? Well, on uh, Wednesdays and Sundays, I do some sort of ministerial work at the church I'm at. And that was a dream of mine. And I'm now in my thirties, almost 40. And yeah, I'm doing that. And I made him a list of things that he had set out to do that was achieving that were deeply meaningful to him, but he was not honoring them because he was comparing himself to other people. Mm -hmm. And I said, so can you see you have a series of successes? We listed them, a bunch of them. He says, okay. And I said, now, in order for you not to think you're successful, you have to be comparing yourself to somebody. So who do you think's got more success than you? If there was nobody else out there, you wouldn't even know about that. So who is it? And he goes, well, I do know. It's the guy up on top of the hill who's he's got a bigger practice than I do. And he's got a six uh, car garage and a 6,000 square foot home. And he's got this and he's got that. And he makes a lot of money. And I said, great. Do you know him really well? And he goes, yeah, I know him pretty good. Do you know, is he married? Yeah. What's his family like? What's his wife like? Are they, they have a same kind of relationship you do? He goes, no, no, God, no, no. They're, it's very volatile. They, they break up and come back together and it's just like, okay, great. So right now, can you see that you have a relationship with your wife that was different than his? Oh yeah. Would you trade place with that? Oh God, no. And what about his son? Does he have any kids? He said, yeah. Does he have a son? Yeah. What about his relationship with his son? Oh, well, yeah, they're having problems with him. He's doing drugs. He's not doing well in school. And they're having to go to a therapist all the time. And, and I said, great. And now what about his yard? Does he work in the yard? No, no, he has people that take care of it. I don't think if he notices it. And what about his mother-in-law? Oh, yeah, they moved out of the country, get away from that crazy lady. And there's a battle going on between him and his, and his wife's wife, mother. And what about church? Does he go to church and does minister work? He says, no, he's not involved in that. He's focused on his business. And I said, let me explain something to you. That man's not more successful than you. That man has success in a different set of values. He has a higher value on business and finance, a lower value on family and spirituality and family. And so, in fact, you're not less successful. You're successful in your values. He's successful in his values. He's achieving according to his values and his hierarchy of his values is dictating his destiny. He's got the big car and everything else, but his relationship and his relationship with his spirituality is different. But you got now a relationship with your family and your spirituality, everything else, but you're not focused on business. Business and money is not your highest value. He goes, wow, I never thought of it this way. I said, so don't think he's more successful. He's got a different form of success. And as long as we compare ourselves to other people, we'll not appreciate our own path. Now, if we change our values, which we can, we can change our path. But unless we change our values, to expect to live outside those values and excel in something that's not really valuable is self-defeating. And that's the number one aspect of limited beliefs, self-depreciation, negative self-talk, sabotage, all those languages that the pseudo self-help people are putting out there are all symptoms of incongruency, not knowing what's really important and not honoring it. Mm -hmm. But living mm -hmm. according to what you really value and honoring that or shifting your values, either go do what you love according to your values or love what you do by linking what you're doing to those values or shift the values. But mm -hmm. any incongruency is going to lead to unfulfillment. 
And so with, do you believe in limiting beliefs? Is that, do you, I mean, are they real? I, I've been studying those things. I've been, I've been told about them, but every time I break them down into what they are, I found out it's somebody you subordinated to because you injected the values of somebody else and then attempted to live according to those values and had a conflict between what your own values are because those decisions are based on your values and what you expect them to be. And then you're not living fully and you're comparing yourself to an ideal. And then you're thinking there's something wrong with you. I'm beating myself up and sabotaging or whatever. So it's, I, I found it when I go in and I find out the moment I find out who it is you're comparing yourself to, I level the playing fields by having you own the traits of these people you so admired. The moment you do, it's broken. Guaranteed. I can, I can money back guarantee that so-called limiting belief is breakable in, in a very short period of time. I've had people, I've had a young models, supermodels that go up and they see another girl and they go, wow, look how thick her hair is. And then they depreciate their hair. And then they go, look how nice her thighs are. And then they depreciate their thighs and look how great their smile and their cheekbones are. And then they depreciate their thing. And then they can't see their own beauty because they're taking one part of another individual and one part of another individual, none part of another individual. And they've got dysmorphic perceptions of themselves. Instead of honoring the magnificence of themselves, they're comparing all those little parts of one part of an individual to their whole being and self-depreciating. Mm -hmm. And until they go in there and find out the downsides of those parts and the limited, the, 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 the negatives of those positives and neutralize them out, they're going to be sitting there self-depreciating because they're trying to be somebody they're not. Mm -hmm. And that, I mean, that all makes absolute sense. And I think the, I wanted to say, I've got a, I've got a quote around where this started was like inspiration and my, sort of definition of fulfillment is fulfillment is um working towards something meaningful to you even when it's hard and where well, we just said exactly what i was saying going after what's really deeply meaningful regardless of pain or pleasure that's exactly it yeah and it this is going to start tapping into like consciousness i know we've got maybe five ten minutes left and so i don't want to open up too big a can of worms but this question I wrote down and I've pondered, which is the higher you, you call them newospheres, the higher we climb up the newospheres. Am I right to say that's a level of consciousness? When you, when you're doing something that's deeply meaningful, truly inspiring, something that you're absolutely spontaneously love doing mm -hmm. the space, when you achieve, because you'll achieve. And when you achieve, you're going to want to go and achieve something greater. Mm -hmm. And greater means a greater sphere of awareness mm -hmm. in knowledge or a greater sphere of influence in some service. And that we could call a sphere of the mind, a newosphere. Newos means mind. So we've expanded our mind on what's possible and we've expanded our awareness of what we perceive. And this is expanding it. And so uh, when you go out into space, out like a cosmonaut or an astronaut in space, looking back at the earth, you realize, wow, you fall in love with the earth. You have a, what is called the overview effect. You don't get caught in judgment down like you have in the terrestrial world, the world of trial. You're down in this, you're up in the celestial world and you're looking from a harmonious state of, wow, what a magnificent place this place is, earth, beautiful. So the more you expand your, your sphere of awareness and influence, the higher the probability of you having a mark on the planet. Mm -hmm. Because all value structures go from those who have the most empowerment to those the least empowerment in society. Mm -hmm. Whenever you're looking down on people, you project values. Whenever you're looking up at people, you inject values. Because it goes from those who have the most expanded awareness down to those that have the least expanded awareness. And so conscious awareness, that's why when you're unconscious of parts of yourself, you're disempowering the conscious awareness. 
But when you're fully conscious of both sides and you can embrace both sides of your life and not try to get rid of half of yourself because you're comparing yourself to other people. I'm always amazed at how many people are trying to get rid of half their life and try to love themselves by giving rid of half of themselves. You don't need to get rid of any part of yourself to love yourself. There's nothing you need to get rid of. There's something to understand why it's there and how it's serving you and then how it serves others. And when you do, you actually appreciate that and your conscious awareness grows. And I call him a newosphere because that's what Vladimir Vernatsky coined the term back in the 1930s in his book, Bio Biosphere. The newosphere was a stage of awareness. Chardin described it in his Phenomenon of Man in 1955, expanding the awareness and eventually encompass the solar system. Like Elon Musk is already thinking, hey, you were gonna take over the solar system, right? That's an expanded awareness. The other people are down here in survival. They're not thinking of what I can do globally. They're not thinking of what I can do astronomically. They're thinking, how do I survive this in my family this week? Mm -hmm. People have a greater newosphere, look back and see the magnificence and realize that they can do something extraordinary on the planet. That's what I'm interested in helping people do. And is this why people that do tend to have a higher level uh, an expanded awareness, a high level of thinking, have less children because well, they're not the, the in the survival fate? Like the fertility, the fertility and mortality rates are typically socioeconomic. That doesn't always guarantee you. That's just a general scheme. But you may have people that are extremely aware and have children because they may be married to somebody that wants to have children. They may not be focused on it, or maybe they are. Or maybe they go, you know what? I'm going to go and build a, a massive family and we're going to open up a series of entrepreneurial companies or something. They have a vision for that. But overall, mortality and fertility go up, down the socioeconomic scale and go down, up the socioeconomic scale. And that's, that was called R reproduction rates and K reproduction rates in other species besides humans. Fish spawn large numbers of fish. Not them all make it. Fertility and mortality is very high. But a whale may get a handful, right? A mammal. And a human may have a handful unless you're extraordinary. I think 88, er, 88 children, I think one man did from India. But uh, the reality is that we're typically K as a human being and we have fewer in awareness. And economically, we get more advantages by having fewer children economically, which gives us more advantages in health because the word wheel or wealth or health come from the same roots because if you have more economics, you have a greater healthcare potential. So you have a higher probability, but you always have people that are highly aware that also have children or people that are unaware that don't, but the general scheme is still, still there. And this is pretty much it was the animalistic part of our mind is, I know you say feeding fucking and maybe something else. And then the more aware part of our mind is solving these big world problems. <clears throat> if, if, if our evolution is about rising our level of thinking out of survival What's the correlation between, because the species continuing needs us to be fucking. So is there a correlation between if, I mean, can we, can we become so up in the newospheres that our species as, as humans, the animal part of us, the, the matter, as opposed to the energetic spiritual part of us, no, like ceases to exist. Yeah. The, the, the probability of if we become highly aware, we're also going to be developing technologically, won't we? And we'll be taking on our knowledge up in technology and continuing it on. So we'll work with robotics and, and you know, disruptive types of technologies in the future. But we know along the way that for our species, we're going to re reproduce. But we may come across a more efficient reproduction system in the future, for all we know. I can't guarantee we won't. 
I don't know what that's going to be. Mm-hmm. You know, we, where we're going to be a hundred years from now, would you agree that a hundred years ago, we couldn't perceive what we're doing today? It would have been almost inconceivable. And it's getting, the, the growth is getting faster and faster, the more technology. A hundred years from now, it's going to change. And, yeah. and so I don't know what re- reproduction is going to be. Androgyny is going to be emerging. We're seeing transgender stuff going on. We're seeing that fertility mortality rates are now going to be changed. It's going to be artificially involved. There are going to be genetic in- involvements on it and selection processes. It's hard for us to comprehend where we're going to be 100 years from now or 200 years from now or 500 years from now. Hard to comprehend. Yeah. But the probability is an androgynous integration of all complementary opposites. And that's the path that, that consciousness has done. It's a dialectic as Will Durant describes is our journey. So, and reproductive processes have their inefficiencies. <laughs> it, when you say androgynous, androgen is, is like a testosterone? What's, what's, what do you mean by androgynous that? Androgynous means a, a male and female integration. Yes, well, this is, this is a, we don't have time to dive into this. I, I know that, but I, have brought this up many times of it seems like everything is going from um, like duality to singularity. And that includes consciousness, the masculine and feminine energy coming together. And I was wondering how that affects from that spiritual world down into the physical world. Are we going to see, what are your thoughts on the potential of beings being not male or female, which could be a crazy concept to some, and and I would ask them to explore it. Well, when you stop and think about the reproductive system, as long as we have to reproduce and survive by reproduction, gender will be valuable because it creates the polarity for gender. But if we don't have that and we have transcended that in our reproductive system, that may not be important. Mm -hmm. And there are species out there that... that, Hard to even relate to that because we got a whole history of the other. But you got to realize that all businesses, all families strive for androgyny. All chemistry strives for the balance of opposites. The dialectic by Zeno and all the great philosophers of the ages and their dialogues have been through the dialectic. And I've taken it even a step further with my Demartini method and transcended the dialectic by the synthesis and synchronicity of opposites. Mm -hmm. Carl Jung and Wolfgang Pauli and others have attempted to try to introduce that, but I found a way of actually doing that. Mm -hmm. And that allows us to realize that whatever we see in others is inside us. Where we're, uh, Jung would describe it as, uh, you know, we have the anima and the animus. They're parts of the other side in there. And no one's one-sided completely. There's only just a ratio of perceptions and racial components. And even that is questionable at times. And so our brains, the, the lateralization of our brain and the lateralization of all parts of us is now questioned. It used to be a dogma. It's mm-hmm. all been transcended lately. Yes. So I don't know. I, I think 100 years from now, we're going to have a, a good laugh about what we are now freaked out about today will be norm. That's... And we and, and what we what we're worried about in learning is it would be different. I mean, right now they're about to they're they're building a building across the street right now. There's no parking. It's a condominium, no parking, because they're preparing for Uber and preparing for Amazon system where people aren't going to want to c- own a car. Why take 25% of your house and put it into closets and a garage that has and stores depreciable consumables that go down in value and devalue yourself? When you can hire specialists to do that and use your space more effectively and actually have an appreciating asset and use that for rentals or whatever, there's going to be a shift in that. And whoever's keeping up with that shift and disrupting that and keeping that moving is where we're headed. And whoever doesn't, it goes kind of extinct. And so we get they, we have the an evolution to it. And androgyny is part of that evolution. Yeah, that is it. 
because I do put you on a pedestal a little bit, I, it, it, you've what you've just said has clarified a lot of my thoughts around that. And it makes it to me, it makes sense. And I love that you are thinking and believing the same thing. Um, I watched your, we'll wrap it up now. I watched your video on pers it's, it's a, it's a paid sort of program on your website, personifying the quantum something. And it yeah. was about, it was about bringing those two opposites together with, within our personality, the same way that, that physics or quantum physics is doing as well. And that for anybody that's curious to dive deep, I would recommend going to the website and, and watching that. So yeah, I did that about 15 or so years ago. That's an old one, but it's, it's, uh, I was speaking to a group of scientists and psychologists and philosophers, uh, I believe in somewhere in uh, uh, New Mexico, I think, at a conference there. And we went down kind of the rabbit hole and it was interesting. There were some physicists there. We went down the rabbit hole on quantum theory as it relates, as a metaphor. Um, because when I was 18 years old, I read, read a, a book by Paul Dirac, who was a Nobel prize winner, who wrote a book called, in a sense, um, on quantum theory, the, the principles of quantum theory. Mm -hmm. And in there, as I was going through that, I saw that particle nanoparticles, if they join together, they make light. And I thought, what if we took positive and negative personalities and wove them together morally and integrated and transcended a metacognition state and actually reached a point where we actually had enlightenment. And that started me at 18 on down the journey of studying 299 different disciplines to try to put together a model on that for that objective. And now I've got a tool that I can demonstrate that with that's reproducible and it's quite profound. And I think the world will be ready for it as the, as the years goes on and people are getting more and more ready for these principles. I have thousands of people that are now using it and, and sharing it around the world with me. And um, it's very inspiring to watch the, the involvement of this conscious awareness that's going on. And mm. it's not better or worse. It's not a moral hypocrisy. It's just a journey of honoring the magnificence of the pairs of opposites through life. Mm -hmm. Is that what, is that the synchronicity event? Well, I have a program called Synchronicity where we actually practice the exercise, but it's the breakthrough experiences where I introduce it. And the Demartini method is what I introduce on the actual method that's being used to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, Dr. John Demartini, thank you so much for today's um, podcast. I've loved it. I hope you've loved it. And I hope everyone else has loved it. If you have, Drop a comment below, uh, share if you think that stuff was valuable and you want to blow some minds, like it. And if you have any questions for myself, obviously ask. If you have any questions for Dr. John Demartini, please contact him. Go through his website, drdemartini.com. Uh, Go through the values process. I can't recommend that enough. And once again, Dr. John Demartini, thank you so much for jumping on the show.